Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. The Satyricon, Volume 01, by Petronius Arbiter. The Satyricon of Volume 1. Preface. Among the difficulties which beset the path of the conscientious translator, a sense of his own unworthiness must ever take precedence. But another, scarcely less disconcerting, is the likelihood of misunderstanding some illusion which was perfectly familiar to the author and his public, but which, by reason of its purely local significance, is obscure and subject to the misinterpretation and emendation of a later generation. A translation worthy of the name is as much the product of a literary epoch as it is of the brain and labor of a scholar, and Nalmatha's version of the letters of Pliny the Younger, made, as it was, at a period when the art of English letter-writing had attained its highest excellence, may well be the despair of our twentieth-century apostles of specialization, who, today, could imbue a translation of the golden ass with the exquisite flavor of William Adlington's unscholarly version of that masterpiece? Who could rival Arthur Golding's rendering of the Metamorphoses of Ovid, or Francis Hicks' masterly rendering of Lucian's true history? But eternal life means endless change and in nothing is this truth more strikingly manifest than in the growth and decadence of living languages and in the translation of dead tongues into the ever-changing tissue of the living. Were it not for this, no translation worthy of the name would ever stand in need of revision, except in instances where the discovery and collation of fresh manuscripts had improved the text. In the case of an author whose characters speak in the argot proper to their surroundings, the necessity for revision is even more imperative. The change in the cultured speech of a language is a process that requires years to become pronounced. The evolution of slang is rapid and its usage ephemeral. For example, Stephen Gasolee, in his bibliography of Petronius, calls attention to Harry Thurston Peck's rendering of Bellum Pullman by He's a Daisy, and remarks, appropriately enough, that this was well enough for 1898 but we would now be more inclined to render it he's a peach. Again, Peck renders. Illid erat vivera. Bye. That was life. But, in the words of our lyric American jazz, we would be more inclined to render it. That was the life. But, as Professor Gasolee has said, no rendering of this part of the satyricon can be final. It must always be in the slang of the hour. Some, writes the immortal translator of Rabelais in his preface, have deservedly gained esteem by translating, yet not many condescend to translate but such as cannot invent, though to do the first well, requires often as much genius as to do the latter. I wish, reader, thou mayest be as willing to do the author justice, as I have strove to do him right. Many scholars have lamented the failure of Justice Lipsius to comment upon Petronius or edit an edition of the Satyricon. Had he done so, he might have gone far toward piercing the veil of darkness which enshrouds the authorship of the work and the very age in which the composer flourished. To me, personally, the fact that Lawrence Stern did not undertake a version has caused much regret. The master who delineated Tristram Shandy's father and the intrigue between the widow Wadman and Uncle Toby would have drawn Trimalchio and his peers to admiration. W. C. F. Contents. Contents. Preface. Introduction. The Author. Realism. Forgeries.
illustrations, illustrations, the witch's front piece, the witch's front piece, an extemporary declamation, an extemporary declamation, an old herb woman, an old herb woman, hurrying to the inn, hurrying to the inn, making off, making off, Trifina, Trifina, the holy mysteries, the holy mysteries, Cortia, Cortia, Psyche, Psyche, the catamite, the catamite, the debauch, the debauch, the drunkards, the drunkards, Cortia and Jaitan, Cortia and Jaitan, the chink in the door, the chink in the door, Panicus, Panicus, Introduction Of the many masterpieces which classical antiquity has bequeathed to modern times, few have attained, at intervals, to such popularity, few have so gripped the interest of scholars and men of letters, as has this scintillating miscellany known as the Satyricon, ascribed by tradition to that Petronius who, at the court of Nero, acted as arbiter of elegance and dictator of fashion. The flashing, wit, the masterly touches which bring out the characters with all the detail of a fine old copper etching, the marvelous use of realism by this, its first prophet, the sure knowledge of the perspective and background best adapted to each episode, the racy style, so smooth, so elegant, so simple when the educated are speaking, beguile the reader and blind him, at first, to the many discrepancies and incoherences with which the text, as we have it, is marred. The more one concentrates upon this author, the more apparent these faults become and the more one regrets the lacunae in the text. Notwithstanding numerous articles which deal with this work, some from the pens of the most profound scholars, its author is still shrouded in the mists of uncertainty and conjecture. He is as impersonal as Shakespeare, as aloof as Flaubert, in the opinion of Charles Wibley, and it may be added, as genial as Rabelais, an enigmatic genius whose secret will never be laid bare with the resources at our present command. As I am not writing for scholars, I do not intend going very deeply into the labyrinth of critical controversy which surrounds the author and the work, but I shall deal with a few of the questions which, if properly understood, will enhance the value of the satiricon and contribute, in some degree, to a better understanding of the author. For the sake of convenience the questions discussed in this introduction will be arranged in the following order. 1. The Satyricon. 2. The author. A his character. Be his purpose in writing. See time in which the action is placed. Delocalization of the principal episode. 3. Realism. A influence of the Satyricon upon the literature of the world. 4. The forgeries. I. The Satyricon. Hainsius and Scaliger derive the word from the Greek, whence comes our English word satyr, but Kasabin, Dacier and Spanheim derive it from the Latin satura, a plate filled with different kinds of food, and they refer to Porphyrian's multis et various rebus hoc carmen referdum est. The text, as we possess it, may be divided into three divisions, the first and last relate the adventures of Encalpius and his companions, the second, which is a digression, describes the dinner of Trimalchio. That the work was originally divided into books, we had long known from ancient glossaries, and we learn, from the title of the Trigurientian manuscript, that the fragments therein contained are excerpts from the fifteenth and sixteenth books. An interpolation of Fulgentius, Paris 7975, 
attributes to Book 14 the scene related in Chapter 20 of the work as we have it, and the glossary of St. Benedict Florius Census cites the passage said video t totem in illa herera, quae troi halos in ostendit, Chapter 89, as from Book 15. As there is no reason to suppose that the chapters intervening between the end of the Sina, Chapter 79, and Chapter 89 are out of place, it follows that this passage may have belonged to Book 16, or even 17, but that it could not have belonged to Book 15. From the interpolation of Fulgentius we may hazard the opinion that the beginning of the fragments, as we possess them, chapters 1 to 26, form part of Book 14. The dinner of Trimalchio probably formed a complete book, 15, and the continuation of the adventures of Encolpius down to his meeting with Eumolpus, end of chapter 140, book 16. The discomfiture of Eumolpus should have closed this book but not the entire work, as the exit of the two principal characters is not fixed at the time our fragments come to an end. The original work, then, would probably have exceeded Tom Jones in length. 2. The Author A. Not often, says Studer, Rheinisches Museum, 1843. Has there been so much dispute about the author of the times, the character and the purpose of a writing of antiquity as about the fragments of the Satyricon of Petronius? The discovery and publication of the Traum manuscript brought about a literary controversy which has had few parallels, and which has not entirely died out to this day, although the best authorities ascribe the work to Caius Petronius, the Arbiter Elegantiarum at the court of Nero. The question as to the date of the narrative of the adventures of Encolpius and his boon companions must be regarded as settled, says Theodore Momsen, Hermes, 1878. This narrative is unsurpassed in originality and mastery of treatment among the writings of Roman literature. Nor does anyone doubt the identity of its author and the Arbiter Elegantiarum of Nero, whose end Tacitus relates. In any case, the author of this work, if it be the work of one brain, must have been a profound psychologist, a master of realism, a natural-born storyteller, and a gentleman. Be his principal object in writing the work was to amuse but, in amusing, he also intended to pillory the aristocracy and his wit is as keen as the point of a rapier. But when we bear in mind the fact that he was an ancient, we will find that his cynicism is not cruel, in him there is none of the malignity of Aristophanes. There is rather the attitude of the refined patrician who is always under the necessity of facing those things which he holds most in contempt, the supreme artist who suffers from the multitude of billboards, so to speak, who lashes the posters but holds in pitying contempt those who know so little of true art that they mistake those posters for the genuine article. Niebuhr's estimate of his character is so just and free from prejudice, and proceeds from a mind which, in itself, was so pure and wholesome that I will quote it. All great dramatic poets are endowed with the power of creating beings who seem to act and speak with perfect independence, so that the poet is nothing more than the relator of what takes place. When Goethe had conceived Faust and Margaret, Mephistopheles and Wagner, they moved and had their being without any exercise of his will. But in the peculiar power which Petronius exercises, in its application to every scene, to every individual character, in everything, noble or mean, which he undertakes, I know of but one who is fully equal to the Roman, and that is Diderot. Trimalchio and Agamemnon might have spoken for Petronius, and the nephew Rameau and the parson Papin for Diderot, in every condition and on every occasion inexhaustibly, out of their own nature, just so the purest and noblest souls, 
whose kind was, after all, not entirely extinct in their day. Diderot and a contemporary, related to him in spirit, Count Gaspar Gazzi, are marked with the same cynicism which disfigures the Roman. Their age, like his, had become shameless. But as the two former were in their heart noble, upright, and benevolent men, and as in the writings of Diderot genuine virtue and a tenderness unknown to his contemporaries breathe, so the peculiarity of such a genius can, as it seems, be given to a noble and elevated being only. The deep contempt for prevailing immorality which naturally leads to cynicism, and a heart which beats for everything great and glorious, virtues which then had no existence, speak from the pages of the Roman in a language intelligible to every susceptible heart. See Beck in his paper. The age of Petronius Arbiter concluded that the author lived and wrote between the years 6 AD and 34 AD, but he overlooked the possibility that the author might have lived a few years later, written of conditions as they were in his own times, and yet laid the action of his novel a few years before. Momsen and Haley placed the time under Augustus, Buscheller, about 36 to 7 AD, and Friedlander under Nero. De La Porte du Thiel places the scene at Naples because of the fact the city in which our heroes met Agamemnon must have been of some considerable size because either Encolpius nor Asclidos could find their way back to their inn, when once they had left it, because both were tired out from tramping around in search of it, and because Jiton had been so impressed with this danger that he took the precaution to mark the pillars with chalk in order that they might not be lost a second time. The Gulf of Naples is the only bit of coastline which fits the needs of the novel, hence the city must be Naples. The fact that neither of the characters knew the city proves that they had been recent arrivals, and this furnishes a clue, vague though it is, to what may have gone before. Haley. Harvard Studies in Classical Philology. Volume 2 makes out a very strong case for Putili, and his theory of the old town and the new town is as ingenious as it is able. Haley also has Trimalchio in his favor, as has also La Porte du Thiel. I saw the Sibyl at Cumi, says Trimalchio. Now if the scene of the dinner is actually at Cumi this sounds very peculiar. It might even be a gloss added by some copyist whose knowledge was not equal to his industry. On the other hand, suppose Trimalchio is speaking of something so commonplace in his locality that the second term has become a generic, then the difficulty disappears. We today even though standing upon the very spot in Melos where the Venus was unearthed, would still refer to her as the Venus de Melos. Friedlander, in bracketing Cumis, has not taken this sufficiently into consideration. Momsen, in an excellent paper, Hermes, 1878, has laid the scene at Cumi. His logic is almost unanswerable, and the consensus of opinion is in favor of the latter town. 3. Realism Realism as we are concerned with it, may be defined as the literary effect produced by the marshalling of details and their exactitude for the purpose of bringing out character. The fact that they may be ugly and vulgar the reverse makes not the slightest difference. The modern realist contemplates the inanimate things which surround us with peculiar complaisance, and it is right that he should as these things exert upon us a constant and secret influence. The workings of the human mind in complex civilizations are by no means simple. They are involved and varied. Our thoughts, our feelings, our wills, associate themselves with an infinite number of sensations and images which play one upon the other, and which individualize, in some measure, every action we commit, and stamp it. 
The merit of our modern realists lies in the fact that they have studied the things which surround us and our relations to them, and thus have they been able to make their creations conform to human experience. The ancients gave little attention to this. The man, with them, was the important thing, the environment the unimportant. There are, of course, exceptions. The interview between Ulysses and Nausicaa is probably the most striking. From the standpoint of environment, Petronius, in the greater portion of his work, is an ancient, but one exception there is, and it is as brilliant as it is important. The entire episode, in which Trimalchio figures, offers an incredible abundance of details. The descriptions are exhaustive and minute, but the author's prime purpose was not description, it was to bring out the characters, it was to pillory the Roman aristocracy, it was to amuse. Cicero, in his prosecution of Verres, had shown up this aristocracy in all its brutality and greed, it remained for the author of the Sina to hold its absurdity up to the light of day, to lash an extravagance which, though utterly unbridled, was yet unable to exhaust the looted accumulations of years of political double-dealing and malfeasance in office. Trimalchio's introduction is a masterstroke, the porter at the door is another, the effect of the wine upon the women, their jealousy lest either's husband should seem more liberal, their appraisal of each other's jewelry, Scintilla's remark anent the finesse of Habina's servant in the mere matter of pandering, the blear-eyed and black-toothed slave, teasing the little bitch disgustingly fat, offering her pieces of bread and when, from sheer inability, she refuses to eat, cramming it down her throat, the effect of the alcohol upon Trimalchio, the little old lady girded round with a filthy apron, wearing clogs which were not mates, dragging in a huge dog on a chain, the incomparable humor in the passage in which Hesus, desperately seasick, sees that which makes him believe that even worse misfortunes are in store for him, these details are masterpieces of realism. The description of the night-prowling shyster lawyer, whose forehead is covered with sebaceous winds, is the very acme of propriety. Our first meeting with the poet Eumolpus is a beautiful study in background and perspective. Nineteen centuries have gone their way since this novel was written, but if we look about us we will be able to recognize, under the veneer of civilization, the originals of the Satyricon, and we will find that here, in a little corner of the Roman world, all humanity was held in miniature. Petronius must be credited with the great merit of having introduced realism into the novel. By an inspiration of genius, he saw that the framework of frivolous and licentious novels could be enlarged until it took in contemporary custom and environment. It is that which assures for him an eminent place, not in Roman literature alone, but in the literature of the world. A Influence of the Satyricon Upon Literature The vagrant heroes of Petronius are the originals from whom directly, or indirectly, later authors drew that inspiration which resulted in the great mass of picaresque fiction. But great as this is, it is not to this that the Satyricon owes its powerful influence upon the literature of the world. It is to the author's recognition of the importance of environment, of the vital role of inanimate surroundings as a means for bringing out character and imbuing his episodes and the actions of his characters with an air of reality, and with those impulses and actions which are common to human experience, that his influence is due. By this, the Roman created a new style of writing and inaugurated a class of literature which was without parallel until the time of Apuleius and, in a lesser degree, of Lucian. This class of literature, though modified essentially from age to age, in keeping with the dictates of moral purity or bigotry, innocent or otherwise, 
has come to be the very stuff of which literary success in fiction is made. One may write a successful book without a thread of romance. One cannot write a successful romance without some knowledge of realism. The more intimate the knowledge, the better the book, and it is frequently to this that the failure of a novel is due, although the critic might be at a loss to explain it. Petronius lies behind Tristram Shandy. His influence can be detected in Smollett, and even Fielding paid tribute to him. 4. Forgeries of Petronius From the very nature of the writings of such an author as Petronius, it is evident that the gaps in the text would have a marked tendency to stimulate the curiosity of literary forgers and to tempt their sagacity, literary or otherwise. The recovery of the Trimalchionian episode and the subsequent pamphleteering would by no means eradicate this. Cacoethesium and Dandy When, circa 1650, the library of the unfortunate Nicholas Sipico yielded up the trow fragment, the news of this discovery spread far and wide and about twelve years later, Statilio, in response to the repeated requests of the Venetian ambassador, Pietro Bassadonna, made with his own hand a copy of the MS, which he sent to Bassadonna. The ambassador, in turn, permitted this MS to be printed by one Frambati, a printer endowed with more industry than critical acumen, and the resultant textual conflation had much to do with the pamphlet war which followed. Had this Paduan printer followed the explicit directions which he received, and printed exactly what was given him much good paper might have been saved and a very interesting chapter in the history of literary forgery would probably never have been written. The pamphlet war did not die out until Blue, in 1670-71, printed his exact reproduction of the Trow manuscript and the corrections introduced by that licentiousness of emendation of which we have spoken. In October, 1690, François Nodot, a French soldier of fortune, a commissary officer who combined Bell's lettre and philosophy with his official duties, wrote to Charpentier, president of the Academy of France, calling his attention to a copy of a manuscript which he, Nodot, possessed, and which came into his hands in the following manner, one Dupin, a French officer detailed to service with Austria, had been present at the sack of Belgrade in 1688 that this Dupin had, while there, made the acquaintance of a certain Greek renegade, having, as a matter of fact, stayed in the house of this renegade. The Greek's father, a man of some learning, had by some means come into possession of the MS, and Dupin, in going through some of the books in the house, had come across it. He had experienced the utmost difficulty in deciphering the letters, and finally, driven by curiosity, had retained a copyist and had it copied out that this Dupin had this copy in his house at Frankfurt, and that he had given Nodot to understand that if he, Nodot, came to Frankfurt, he would be permitted to see this copy. Owing to the exigencies of military service, Nodot had been unable to go in person to Frankfurt, and that he had therefore availed himself of the friendly interest and services of a certain merchant of Frankfurt, who had volunteered to find an amanuensis, have a copy made, and send it to Nodot. This was done and no doubt concludes his letter to Charpentier by requesting the latter to lay the result before the Academy and ask for their blessing and approval. These Nodotian supplements were accepted as authentic by the academics of Alls and Nîmes, as well as by Charpentier. In a short time, however, the voices of scholarly skeptics began to be heard in the land, and accurate and unbiased criticism laid bare the fraud. 
the Latinity was attacked, an exception taken to Silver Age prose in which was found a French police regulation which required newly arrived travelers to register their names in the book of a police officer of an Italian village of the first century. Although they are still retained in the text by some editors, this is done to give some measure of continuity to an otherwise interrupted narrative, but they can only serve to distort the author and obscure whatever view of him the reader might otherwise have reached. They are generally printed between brackets or in different type. In 1768 another and far abler forger saw the light of day. José Marchena, a Spaniard of Jewish extraction, was destined for an ecclesiastical career. He received an excellent education which served to fortify a natural bent toward languages and historical criticism. In his early youth he showed a marked preference for uncanonical pursuits and heretical doctrines, and before he had reached his thirtieth year prudence counseled him to prevent the consequences of his heresy, and avoid the too pressing inquisition by a timely flight into France. He arrived there in time to throw himself into the fight for liberty, and in 1800 we find him at ball attached to the staff of General Moreau. While there he is said to have amused himself and some of his cronies by writing notes on what Davenport would have called forbidden subjects, and, as a means of publishing his erotic lucubrations, he constructed this fragment, which brings in those topics on which he had enlarged. He translated the fragment into French, attached his notes, and issued the book. There is another story to the effect that he had been reprimanded by Moreau for having written a loose song and that he exculpated himself by assuring the general that it was but a new fragment of Petronius which he had translated. Two days later he had the fragment ready to prove his contention. This is the account given by his Spanish biographer. In his preface, dedicated to the Army of the Rhine, he states that he found the fragment in a manuscript of the work of S. T. Genadius on the duties of priests probably of the eleventh century. A close examination revealed the fact that it was a palimpsest which, after treatment, permitted the restoration of this fragment. It is supposed to supply the gap in chapter 26 after the word, verberabent. Its obscenity outrivals that of the preceding text, and the grammar, style, and curiosa felicitas patroniana make it an almost perfect imitation. There is no internal evidence of forgery. If the text is closely scrutinized it will be seen that it is composed of words and expressions taken from various parts of the satyricon, and that in every line it has exactly the Petronian turn of phrase. Not only is the original edition unprocurable, to quote again from Mr. Gasly's invaluable bibliography, but the reprint at Solar, Brussels, 1865, consisted of only 120 copies, and is hard to find. The most accessible place for English readers is in Bond's translation, in which, however, only the Latin text is given, and the notes were a most important part of the original work. These notes, humorously and perhaps sarcastically ascribed to Lalmand, Sankey Theologi Doctor, are six in number, all on various forms of vice, and show great knowledge, classical and sociological, of unsavory subjects. Now that the book is too rare to do us any harm, we may admit that the pastiche was not only highly amusing, but showed a perverse cleverness amounting almost to genius. Marchena died at Madrid in great poverty in 1821. A contemporary has described him as being rather short and heavy set in figure, of great frontal development, and vain beyond belief. He considered himself invincible where women were concerned. He had a peculiar predilection in the choice of animal pets, 
and was an object of fear and curiosity to the townspeople. His forgery might have been completely successful had he not acknowledged it himself within two or three years after the publication of his brochure. The fragment will remain a permanent tribute to the excellence of his scholarship, but it is his ode to Christ crucified which has made him more generally known, and it is one of the ironies of fate that caused this deformed giant of sarcasm to compose a poem of such tender and touching piety. Very little is known about Don Joe Antonio Gonzalez de Salas, whose connecting passages, with the exception of one which is irrelevant, are here included. The learned editors of the Spanish Encyclopedia naively preface their brief sketch with the following assertion. No tenemos noticias de su vida. De Salas was born in 1588 and died in 1654. His edition of Petronius was first issued in 1629 and reissued in 1643 with a copper plate of the editor. The Paris edition, from which he says he supplied certain deficiencies in the text, is unknown to bibliographers and is supposed to be fictitious. To distinguish the spurious passages, as a point of interest, in the present edition, the forgeries of Nodot are printed within round brackets, the forgery of Marcena within square brackets, and the editions of De Salis in italics, in this PGE text in curly brackets. The work is also accompanied by a translation of the six notes, the composition of which led Marcena to forge the fragment which first appeared in the year 1800. These have never before been translated. Thanks are due Ralph Strauss, Yescu, and Professor Stephen Gasly. The Satyricon of Petronius Arbiter Bracket Code Forgeries of Nodot Forgeries of Marchena Editions of De Salis D.W. Volume 1 Adventures of Encolpius and His Companions Chapter the First it has been so long, since I promised you the story of my adventures, that I have decided to make good my word today, and seeing that we have thus fortunately met, not to discuss scientific matters alone, but also to enliven our jolly conversation with witty stories. Fabricius Veento has already spoken very cleverly on the errors committed in the name of religion, and shown how priests, animated by an hypocritical mania for prophecy, boldly expound mysteries which are too often such to themselves. But are our rhetoricians tormented by another species of furies when they cry? I received these wounds while fighting for the public liberty. I lost this eye in your defense. Give me a guide who will lead me to my children. My limbs are hamstrung and will not hold me up. Even these heroics could be endured if they made easier the road to eloquence. But as it is, their sole gain from this ferment of matter and empty discord of words is that when they step into the forum, they think they have been carried into another world. And it is my conviction that the schools are responsible for the gross foolishness of our young men, because, in them, they see or hear nothing at all of the affairs of everyday life, but only pirates standing in chains upon the shore, tyrants scribbling edicts in which sons are ordered to behead their own fathers, responses from oracles, delivered in time of pestilence, ordering the immolation of three or more virgins, Every word a honey drop, every period sprinkled with poppy seed and sesame. Chapter the Second Those who are brought up on such a diet can no more attain to wisdom than a kitchen scullion can attain to a keen sense of smell or avoid stinking of the grease. With your indulgence, I will speak out, you teachers are chiefly responsible for the decay of oratory. 
with your well-modulated and empty tones you have so labored for rhetorical effect that the body of your speech has lost its vigor and died. Young men did not learn set speeches in the days when Sophocles and Euripides were searching for words in which to express themselves. In the days when Pindar and the nine lyric poets feared to attempt Homeric verse there was no private tutor to stifle budding genius. I need not cite the poets for evidence, for I do not find that either Plato or Demosthenes was given to this kind of exercise. A dignified and, if I may say it, a chaste style is neither elaborate nor loaded with ornament. It rises supreme by its own natural purity. This windy and high-sounding bombast, a recent immigrant to Athens, from Asia, touched with its breath the aspiring minds of youth, with the effect of some pestilential planet, and as soon as the tradition of the past was broken, eloquence halted and was stricken dumb. Since that, who has attained to the sublimity of Thucydides, who rivaled the fame of Hyperides? Not a single poem has glowed with a healthy color, but all of them, as though nourished on the same diet, lacked the strength to live to old age. Painting also suffered the same fate when the presumption of the Egyptians commercialized that incomparable art. I was holding forth along these lines one day, when Agamemnon came up to us and scanned with a curious eye a person to whom the audience was listening so closely. Chapter the Third He would not permit me to declaim longer in the portico than he himself had sweat in the school, but exclaimed, Your sentiments do not reflect the public taste, young man, and you are a lover of common sense, which is still more unusual. For that reason, I will not deceive you as to the secrets of my profession. The teachers, who must gibber with lunatics, are by no means to blame for these exercises. Unless they spoke in accordance with the dictates of their young pupils, they would, as Cicero remarks, be left alone in the schools. And, as designing parasites, when they seek invitations to the tables of the rich, have in mind nothing except what will, in their opinion, be most acceptable to their audience for in no other way can they secure their ends, save by setting snares for the years so it is with the teachers of rhetoric. They might be compared with the fisherman, who, unless he baits his hook with what he knows is most appetizing to the little fish, may wait all day upon some rock, without the hope of a catch. Chapter the Fourth What, then, is there to do? The parents who are unwilling to permit their children to undergo a course of training under strict discipline are the ones who deserve the reproof. In the first place, everything they possess, including the children, is devoted to ambition. Then, that their wishes may the more quickly be realized, they drive these unripe scholars into the forum, and the profession of eloquence, than which none is considered nobler, devolves upon boys who are still in the act of being born. If, however, they would permit a graded course of study to be prescribed, in order that studious boys might ripen their minds by diligent reading, balance their judgment by precepts of wisdom, correct their compositions with an unsparing pen, hear at length what they ought to imitate, and be convinced that nothing can be sublime when it is designed to catch the fancy of boys. Then the grand style of oratory would immediately recover the weight and splendor of its majesty. Now the boys play in the schools, the young men are laughed at in the forum, and a worse symptom than either, no one, in his old age, will confess the errors he was taught in his school days. But that you may not imagine that I disapprove of a jingle in the Lycilian manner, I will deliver my opinions in verse. Chapter the Fifth Chapter the Sixth I was listening so attentively to this speech that I did not notice the flight of Asiltos, and while I was pacing the gardens, 
engulfed in this flood tide of rhetoric, a large crowd of students came out upon the portico, having, it would seem, just listened to an extemporaneous declamation, of I know not whom, the speaker of which had taken exceptions to the speech of Agamemnon. While, therefore, the young men were making fun of the sentiments of this last speaker, and criticizing the arrangement of the whole speech, I seized the opportunity and went after Asiltos on the run. But, as I neither held strictly to the road, nor knew where the inn was located, wherever I went, I kept coming back to the same place, until, worn out with running, and long since dripping with sweat, I approached a certain little old woman who sold country vegetables. Chapter the Seventh Please, mother, I wheedled. You don't know where I lodge, do you? Delighted with such humorous affability. What's the reason I don't? She replied, and getting upon her feet, she commenced to walk ahead of me. I took her for a prophetess until, when presently we came to a more obscure quarter, the affable old lady pushed aside a crazy quilt and remarked, Here's where you ought to live. And when I denied that I recognized the house, I saw some men prowling stealthily between the rows of name boards and naked prostitutes. Too late I realized that I had been led into a brothel. After cursing the wiles of the little old hag, I covered my head and commenced to run through the middle of the night house to the exit opposite, when, lo and behold, whom should I meet on the very threshold but Asiltos himself, as tired as I was, and almost dead, you would have thought that he had been brought by the selfsame little old hag. I smiled at that, greeted him cordially, and asked him what he was doing in such a scandalous place. Chapter the Eighth Wiping away the sweat with his hands, he replied, If you only knew what I have gone through. What was it? I demanded. A most respectable-looking person came up to me, he made reply, while I was wandering all over the town and could not find where I had left my inn, and very graciously offered to guide me. He led me through some very dark and crooked alleys, to this place, pulled out his tool, and commenced to beg me to comply with his appetite. A whore had already vacated herself for an ez, and he had laid hands upon me, and, but for the fact that I was the stronger, I would have been compelled to take my medicine. While Asiltos was telling me of his bad luck, who should come up again but this same very respectable-looking person, in company with a woman not at all bad-looking, and looking at Asiltos, he requested him to enter the house, assuring him that there was nothing to fear, and, since he was unwilling to take the passive part, he should have the active. The woman, on her part, urged me very persistently to accompany her, so we followed the couple, at last, and were conducted between the rows of name-boards, where we saw, in cells, many persons of each sex amusing themselves in such a manner, that it seemed to me that every one of them must have been drinking satyrian. On catching sight of us, they attempted to seduce us with pederastic wantonness, and one wretch, with his clothes girded up, assaulted Asiltos, and, having thrown him down upon a couch, attempted to gore him from above. I succored the sufferer immediately, however, and having joined forces, we defied the troublesome wretch. Asiltos ran out of the house and took to his heels, leaving me as the object of their lewd attacks. But the crowd, finding me the stronger in body and purpose, let me go unharmed. Chapter the Ninth After having tramped nearly all over the city, I caught sight of Jiton, as though through a fog, standing at the end of the street, on the very threshold of the inn, and I hastened to the same place. When I inquired whether my brother had prepared anything for breakfast, 
The boy sat down upon the bed and wiped away the trickling tears with his thumb. I was greatly disturbed by such conduct on the part of my brother, and demanded to be told what had happened. After I had mingled threats with entreaties, he answered slowly and against his will. That brother or comrade of yours rushed into the room a little while ago and commenced to attempt my virtue by force. When I screamed, he pulled out his tool and gritted out if you're a Lucretia, you've found your Tarquin. When I heard this, I shook my fists in Asilto's face. What have you to say for yourself? I snarled. You rutting pathic harlot, whose very breath is infected. Asilto's pretended to bristle up and shaking his fists more boldly still, he roared. Won't you keep quiet, you filthy gladiator, you who escaped from the criminal's cage in the amphitheater to which you were condemned, for the murder of your host? Won't you hold your tongue, you nocturnal assassin, who, even when you swived it bravely, never entered the lists with a decent woman in your life? Was I not a brother to you in the pleasure garden, in the same sense as that in which this boy now is in this lodging house? You sneaked away from the master's lecture. I objected. Chapter the Tenth what should I have done, you triple fool, when I was dying of hunger? I suppose I should have listened to opinions as much to the purpose as the tinkle of broken glass or the interpretation of dreams. By Hercules, you are much more deserving of censure than I, you who will flatter a poet so as to get an invitation to dinner. Then we laughed ourselves out of a most disgraceful quarrel, and approached more peaceably whatever remained to be done. But the remembrance of that injury recurred to my mind and, Asiltos, I said, I know we shall not be able to agree, so let us divide our little packs of common stock and try to defeat our poverty by our individual efforts. Both you and I know letters, but that I may not stand in the way of any undertaking of yours, I will take up some other profession. Otherwise, a thousand trifles will bring us into daily collision and furnish cause for gossip through the whole town. Asiltos made no objection to this, but merely remarked. As we, in our capacity of scholars, have accepted an invitation to dinner, for this date, let us not lose our night. Since it seems to be the graceful thing to do, I will look out for another lodging and another brother, tomorrow. Deferred pleasures are a long time coming. I sighed. It was lust that made this separation so hasty, for I had, for a long time, wished to be rid of a troublesome chaperone, so that I could resume my old relations with my jiton. Bearing this affront with difficulty, Asiltos rushed from the room, without uttering a word. Such a headlong outburst augured badly, for I well knew his ungovernable temper and his unbridled passion. On this account I followed him out, desirous of fathoming his designs and of preventing their consequences, but he hid himself skillfully from my eyes, and all in vain, I searched for him for a long time. Chapter the Eleventh after having had the whole town under my eyes, I returned to the little room and, having claimed the kisses which were mine in good faith, I encircled the boy in the closest of embraces and enjoyed the effect of our happy vows to a point that might be envied. Nor had all the ceremonies been completed, when Asilto stole stealthily up to the outside of the door and, violently wrenching off the bars, burst in upon me, toying with my brother. He filled the little room with his laughter and hand-clapping pulled away the cloak which covered us. What are you up to now, most sanctimonious brother? He jeered. What's going on here, a blanket wedding? Nor did he confine himself to words, but pulling the strap off his bag, he began to lash me very thoroughly, 
interjecting sarcasms the while. This is the way you would share with your comrade, is it? The unexpectedness of the thing compelled me to endure the blows in silence and to put up with the abuse, so I smiled at my calamity, and very prudently, too, as otherwise I should have been put to the necessity of fighting with a rival. My pretended good humor soothed his anger, and at last, Asilto smiled as well. See here, Encolpius, he said, are you so engrossed with your debaucheries that you do not realize that our money is gone, and that what we have left is of no value? In the summer, times are bad in the city. The country is luckier. Let's go and visit our friends. Necessity compelled the approval of this plan, and the repression of any sense of injury as well. So, loading Jiton with our packs, we left the city and hastened to the country seat of Lycurgus, a Roman knight. Inasmuch as Asiltos has formerly served him in the capacity of brother, he received us royally, and the company there assembled rendered our stay still more delightful. In the first place, there was Trifonina, a most beautiful woman, who had come in company with Lycas, the master of a vessel and owner of estates near the seashore. Although Lycurgus kept a frugal table, the pleasures we enjoyed in this most enchanting spot cannot be described in words. Of course you know that Venus joined us all up, as quickly as possible. The lovely Trifonina pleased my taste, and listened willingly to my vows, but hardly had I had time to enjoy her favors when Lycas, in a towering rage because his preserves had been secretly invaded, demanded that I indemnify him in her stead. She was an old flame of his, so he broached the subject of a mutual exchange of favors. Burning with lust, he pressed his suit, but Trifonina possessed my heart, and I said like his nay. By refusal, however, he was only made more ardent, followed me everywhere, entered my room at night, and, after his entreaties had met with contempt, he had recourse to violence against me, at which I yelled so lustily that I aroused the entire household, and, by the help of Lycurgus, I was delivered from the troublesome assault and escaped. At last, Perceiving that the house of Lycurgus was not suitable to the prosecution of his design, he attempted to persuade me to seek his hospitality, and when his suggestion was refused, he made use of Trifonina's influence over me. She besought me to comply with Lycas' desires, and she did this all the more readily as by that she hoped to gain more liberty of action. With affairs in this posture, I follow my love, but Lycurgus, who had renewed his old relations with the Siltos, would not permit him to leave, so it was decided that he should remain with Lycurgus, but that we would accompany Lycus. Nevertheless, we had it understood among ourselves that whenever the opportunity presented itself, we would each pilfer whatever we could lay hands upon, for the betterment of the common stock. Lycus was highly delighted with my acceptance of his invitation and hastened our departure, so, bidding our friends goodbye, we arrived at his place on the very same day. Lycas had so arranged matters that, on the journey, he sat beside me, while Trifonina was next to Jiton, the reason for this being his knowledge of the woman's notorious inconstancy. Nor was he deceived, for she immediately fell in love with the boy, and I easily perceived it. In addition, Lycas took the trouble of calling my attention to the situation, and laid stress upon the truth of what we saw. On this account, I received his advances more graciously, at which he was overjoyed. He was certain that contempt would be engendered from the inconstancy of my sister, with the result that, being piqued at Trifonina, I would all the more freely receive his advances. 
Now this was the state of affairs at the house of Lycas. Trifonina was desperately in love with Jiton. Jiton's whole soul was aflame for her. Either of them was a pleasing sight to my eyes. And Lycas, studying to please me, arranged novel entertainments each day, which Doris, his lovely wife, seconded to the best of her ability, and so gracefully that she soon expelled Trifonina from my heart. A wink of the eye acquainted Doris of my passion, a coquettish glance informed me of the state of her heart, and this silent language, anticipating the office of the tongue, secretly expressed that longing of our souls which we had both experienced at the same instant. The jealousy of Lycas, already well known to me, was the cause of my silence, but love itself revealed to the wife the designs which Lycas had upon me. At our first opportunity of exchanging confidences, she revealed to me what she had discovered and I candidly confessed, telling her of the coldness with which I had always met his advances. The far-sighted woman remarked that it would be necessary for us to use our wits. It turned out that her advice was sound, for I soon found out that complacency to the one meant possession of the other. Jiton, in the meantime, was recruiting his exhausted strength, and Trifonina turned her attention to me, but meeting with a repulse, she flounced out in a rage. The next thing this burning harlot did was to discover my commerce with both husband and wife. As for his wantonness with me, she flung that aside, as by it she lost nothing, but she fell upon the secret gratifications of Doris and made them known to Lycas, who, his jealousy proving stronger than his lust, took steps to get revenge. Doris, however, forewarned by Trifonina's maid, looked out for squalls and held aloof from any secret assignations. When I became aware of all this, I heartily cursed the perfidy of Trifonina and the ungrateful soul of Lycas, and made up my mind to be gone. Fortune favored me, as it turned out, for a vessel sacred to Isis and laden with prize money had, only the day before, run upon the rocks in the vicinity. After holding a consultation with Jiton, at which he gladly gave consent to my plan, as Trifonina visibly neglected him after having sapped his virility, we hastened to the seashore early on the following morning, and boarded the wreck, a thing easy of accomplishment as the watchmen, who were in the pay of Lycas, knew us well. But they were so attentive to us that there was no opportunity of stealing a thing until, having left Jiton with them, I craftily slipped out of sight and sneaked aft where the statue of Isis stood, and despoiled it of a valuable mantle and a silver sistrum. From the master's cabin, I also pilfered other valuable trifles and, stealthily sliding down a rope, went ashore. Jiton was the only one who saw me and he evaded the watchman and slipped away after me. I showed him the plunder, when he joined me, and we decided to post with all speed to Asiltos, but we did not arrive at the home of Lycurgus until the following day. In a few words I told Asiltos of the robbery, when he joined us, and of our unfortunate love affairs as well. He was for prepossessing the mind of Lycurgus in our favor, naming the increasing wantonness of Lycas as the cause of our secret and sudden change of habitation. When Lycurgus had heard everything, he swore that he would always be a tower of strength between us and our enemies. Until Trifonina and Doris were awake and out of bed, our flight remained undiscovered, for we paid them the homage of a daily attendance at the morning toilette. When our unwanted absence was noted, Lycas sent out runners to comb the seashore, for he suspected that we had been to the wreck, but he was still unaware of the robbery, which was yet unknown because the stern of the wreck was lying away from the beach, and the master had not, as yet, 
gone back aboard. Lycas flew into a towering rage when our flight was established for certain, and railed bitterly at Doris, whom he considered as the moving factor in it. Of the hard words and the beating he gave her I will say nothing, for the particulars are not known to me, but I will affirm that Trifonina, who was the sole cause of the unpleasantness, persuaded Lycas to hunt for his fugitives in the house of Lycurgus, which was our most probable sanctuary. She volunteered to accompany him in person, so that she could load us with the abuse which we deserved at her hands. They set out on the following day and arrived at the estate of Lycurgus, but we were not there, for he had taken us to a neighboring town to attend the Feast of Hercules, which was there being celebrated. As soon as they found out about this, they hastened to take to the road and ran right into us in the portico of the temple. At sight of them, we were greatly put out, and Lycus held forth violently to Lycurgus, upon the subject of our flight, but he was met with raised eyebrows and such a scowling forehead that I plucked up courage and, in a loud voice, passed judgment upon his lewd and base attempts and assaults upon me, not in the house of Lycurgus alone, but even under his own roof, and as for the meddling Trifonina, she received her just deserts. For, at great length, I described her moral turpitude to the crowd. Our altercation had caused the mob to collect, and to give weight to my argument, I pointed to Limberhane Jiton, drained dry, as it were, and to myself, reduced almost to skin and bones by the raging lust of that nymphomaniac harlot. So humiliated were our enemies by the guffaws of the mob, that in gloomy ill-humor they beat a retreat to plot revenge. As they perceived that we had prepossessed the mind of Lycurgus in our favor, they decided to await his return, at his estate, in order that they might wean him away from his misapprehension. As the solemnities did not draw to a close until late at night, we could not reach Lycurgus' country place, so he conducted us to a villa of his, situated near the halfway point of the journey, and leaving us to sleep there until the next day, he set off for his estate for the purpose of transacting some business. Upon his arrival, he found Lycas and Trifonina awaiting him, and they stated their case so diplomatically that they prevailed upon him to deliver us into their hands. Lycurgus, cruel by nature and incapable of keeping his word, was by this time striving to hit upon the best method of betraying us, and to that end, he persuaded Lycas to go for help, while he himself returned to the villa and had us put under guard. To the villa he came, and greeted us with a scowl as black as any Lycas himself had ever achieved, clenching his fists again and again. He charged us with having lied about Lycas, and turning Asiltos out, he gave orders that we were to be kept confined to the room in which we had retired to rest. Nor would he hear a word in our defense, from Asiltos, but taking the latter with him, he returned to his estate, reiterating his orders relative to our confinement, which was to last until his return. On the way back, Asiltos vainly essayed to break down Lycurgus' determination, but neither prayers nor caresses, nor even tears could move him. Thereupon my brother conceived the design of freeing us from our chains, and antagonized by the stubbornness of Lycurgus, he positively refused to sleep with him, and through this he was in a better position to carry out the plan which he had thought out. When the entire household was buried in its first sleep, Asiltos loaded our little packs upon his back and slipped out through a breach in the wall, which he had previously noted, arriving at the villa with the dawn. He gained entrance without opposition and found his way to our room, which the guards had taken the precaution to bar. It was easy to force an entrance, as the fastening was made of wood, 
which same he pried off with a piece of iron. The fall of the lock roused us, for we were snoring away, in spite of our unfortunate situation. On account of the long vigil, the guard was in such a deep sleep that we alone were wakened by the crashing fall of the lock, and Asiltos, coming in, told us in a few words what he had done for us, but as far as that goes, not many were necessary. We were hurriedly dressing, when I was seized with the notion of killing the guard and stripping the place. This plan I confided to Asiltos, who approved of the looting, but pointed out a more desirable solution without bloodshed, knowing all the crooks and turns, as he did, he led us to a storeroom which he opened. We gathered up all that was of value and sallied forth while it was yet early in the morning. Shunning the public roads, we could not rest until we believed ourselves safe from pursuit. Asiltos, when he had caught his breath, gloatingly exulted of the pleasure which the looting of a villa belonging to Lycurgus, a superlatively avaricious man, afforded him. He complained, with justice of his parsimony, affirming that he himself had received no reward for his canightly services, that he had been kept at a dry table and on a skimpy ration of food. This Lycurgus was so stingy that he denied himself even the necessities of life, his immense wealth to the contrary notwithstanding. Asiltos was for going to Naples that same day, but I protested the imprudence of going to any place where they would be on the lookout for us. Let's absent ourselves, for a while, and travel in the country. We are well supplied with means. This advice took his fancy, and we set out for a part of the country noted for the beauty of its estates, and where not a few of our acquaintances were enjoying the sports of the season. Scarcely had we covered half the distance, however, before it began to pour down rain by the bucketful, compelling us to run for the nearest village. Upon entering the inn, we noticed many other wayfarers, who had put up there to escape the storm. The jam prevented our being watched, and at the same time made it easier for us to pry about with curious eyes, on the alert for something to appropriate. Asiltos, unseen by anyone, picked up off the ground a little pouch in which he found some gold pieces. We were overjoyed with this auspicious beginning, but fearing that someone would miss the gold, we stealthily slipped out by the back door. A slave, who was saddling a horse in the courtyard, suddenly left his work and went into the house, as if he had forgotten something, and while he was gone I appropriated a superb mantle which was tied fast to the saddle, by untying the thongs, then, utilizing a row of outbuildings for cover, we made off into the nearest wood. When we had reached the depths of the grove, where we were in safety, we thoroughly discussed the surest method of secreting our gold, so that we would neither be accused of robbery nor robbed ourselves, and we finally decided to sew it into the hem of a ragged tunic, which I threw over my shoulders, after having turned the mantle over to Asiltos for safekeeping. We then made ready to start for the city via the unfrequented roads. We were just about to emerge from the shelter of the wood when we heard, from somewhere on our left, They can't get away, they came into this wood, let's spread out and beat, and they will easily be caught. On hearing this, we were thrown into such a terrible fright that Asiltos and Jaitan dashed away cityward through the underbrush, and I retreated in such a hurry that the precious tunic slipped off my shoulders without my knowing it. At last, completely faggied out, and unable to take another step, I lay down under a tree, and there I first became aware of the loss of the tunic. Chagrin restored my strength, and I leaped to my feet to look for the treasure, and for a long time I beat around in vain. Worn out with work and vexation, 
I forced my way into the thickest part of the grove and remained there for four mortal hours, but at last, bored to extinction by the horrible solitude, I sought a way out. As I went ahead I caught sight of a peasant, then I had need of all my nerve, and it did not fail me. Marching boldly up to him, I asked my way to the city, complaining that I had been lost in the wood for several hours. Seeing my condition, he took pity upon me, for I was covered with mud and paler than death, and asked me whether I had seen anyone in the place. Not a soul, I replied, whereupon he kindly conducted me to the high road, where he met two of his companions, who informed him that they had beaten along every path in the forest without having found anything except a tunic, which they showed him. As may be readily supposed, I did not have the audacity to claim it, though well aware of its value, and my chagrin became almost insupportable as I vented many a groaning curse over my lost treasure. The peasants paid no attention to me, and I was gradually left behind, as my weakness increased my pace decreased. For this reason, it was late when I reached the city, and entering the inn, beheld a siltos stretched out, half dead, upon a cot. Too far gone to utter a single syllable, I threw myself upon another. Asiltos became greatly excited at not seeing the tunic which he had entrusted to me, demanding it insistently. But I was so weak that my voice refused its office and I permitted the apathy of my eyes to answer his demand, then, by and by, regaining my strength little by little, I related the whole affair to Asiltos, in every detail. He thought that I was joking, and although my testimony was fortified by a copious flood of tears, it could easily be seen that he remained unconvinced believing that I wanted to cheat him out of the gold. Jaitan, who was standing by during all this, was as downcast as myself, and the suffering of the lad only served to increase my own vexation. But the thing which bothered me most of all was the painstaking search which was being made for us. I told the Siltos of this, but he only laughed it off, as he had so happily extricated himself from the scrape. He was convinced that, as we were unknown and as no one had seen us, we were perfectly safe. We decided, nevertheless, to feign sickness, and to keep to our room as long as possible. But before we knew it, our money ran out, and spurred by necessity we were forced to go abroad and sell some of our plunder. Chapter the Twelfth Twilight was falling, as we entered the marketplace, in which we noticed a quantity of things for sale, not any of much value, it is true, but such as could be disposed of to the best advantage when the semi-darkness would serve to hide their doubtful origin. As we had brought our stolen mantle, we proceeded to make use of so favorable an opportunity, and, in a secluded spot, displayed a corner of it, hoping the splendid garment would attract some purchaser. Nor was it long before a certain peasant, whose face was familiar to my eyes, came up, accompanied by a young woman, and began to examine the garment very closely. Asiltos, in turn, cast a glance at the shoulders of our rustic customer, and was instantly struck dumb with astonishment. Nor could I myself look upon this man without some emotion, for he seemed to be the identical person who had picked up the ragged tunic in the lonely wood, and, as a matter of fact, he was. Asiltos, afraid to believe the evidence of his own eyes for fear of doing something rash, approached the man, as a prospective buyer, took the hem of the tunic from the rustic shoulders, and felt it thoroughly. Chapter the Thirteenth O wonderful stroke of fortune! The peasant had not yet laid his meddling hands upon the seams, but was scornfully offering the thing for sale, 
as though it had been the leavings of some beggar. When Asiltos had assured himself that the hoard was intact, and had taken note of the social status of the seller, he led me a little aside from the crowd and said, Do you know, brother, that the treasure about which I was so worked up has come back to us? That is the little tunic, and it seems that the gold pieces are still untouched. What ought we to do, and how shall we make good our claim? I was overjoyed, not so much at seeing our booty, as I was for the reason that fortune had released me from a very ugly suspicion. I was opposed to doing anything by devious methods, thinking that should he prove unwilling to restore to the proper owner an article not his own, it ought to come to a civil action and a judgment secured. Chapter the Fourteenth Not so Asiltos, who was afraid of the law, and demurred. Who knows us here? Who will place any credence in anything we say? It seems to me that it would be better to buy, ours though it is, and we know it, and recover the treasure at small cost, rather than to engage in a doubtful lawsuit. But with the exception of a two-as piece with which we had intended purchasing peas and lupins, there was nothing to hand. So, for fear our loot should escape us in the interim, we resolved to appraise the mantle at less, and through a small sacrifice, secure a greater profit. Accordingly, we spread it out, and the young woman of the covered head, who was standing by the peasant's side, narrowly inspected the markings, seized the hem with both hands, and screamed, Thieves! at the top of her voice. We were greatly disconcerted at this, and for fear that inactivity on our part should seem to lend color to her charges, we laid hold of the dirty ragged tunic, in our turn, and shouted with equal spite, that this was our property which they had in their possession. But our cases were by no means on inequality, and the hucksters who had crowded around us at the uproar laughed at our spiteful claim, and very naturally, too, since one side laid claim to a very valuable mantle, while the other demanded a rag which was not worth a good patch. Chapter the Fifteenth Asiltos, when he had secured silence, adroitly put a stop to their laughter by exclaiming, we can see that each puts the greater value upon his own property. Let them return our tunic to us, and take back their mantle. This exchange was satisfactory enough to the peasant and the young woman, but some night-prowling shyster lawyers, who wished to get possession of the mantle for their own profit, demanded that both articles be deposited with them, and the judge could look into the case on the morrow, for it would appear that the ownership of the articles was not so much to the point as was the suspicion of robbery that attached to both sides. The question of sequestration arose, and one of the hucksters, I do not remember which, but he was bald, and his forehead was covered with sebaceous wens, and he sometimes did odd jobs for the lawyers, seized the mantle and vowed that he would see to it that it was produced at the proper time and place but it was easily apparent that he desired nothing but that the garment should be deposited with thieves, and vanish, thinking that we would be afraid to appear as claimants for fear of being charged with crime. As far as we were concerned, we were as willing as he, and fortune aided the cause of each of us, for the peasant, infuriated at our demand that his rags be shown in public through the tunic in Asilto's face, released us from responsibility, and demanded that the mantle, which was the only object of litigation, be sequestered. As we thought we had recovered our treasure, we returned hurriedly to the inn, and fastening the door, we had a good laugh at the shrewdness of the hucksters, and not less so at that of our enemies, for by it they had returned our money to us. While we were unstitching the tunic to get at the gold pieces, 
we overheard someone quizzing the innkeeper as to what kind of people those were, who had just entered his house. Alarmed at this inquiry, I went down, when the questioner had gone, to find out what was the matter, and learned that the Preta's lictor, whose duty it was to see that the names of strangers were entered in his rolls, had seen two people come into the inn, whose names were not yet entered, and that was the reason he had made inquiry as to their names and means of support. Mine host furnished this information in such an offhand manner that I became suspicious as to our entire safety in his house. So, in order to avoid arrest, we decided to go out, and not to return home until after dark, and we sallied forth, leaving the management of dinner to Jiten. As it suited our purpose to avoid the public streets, we strolled through the more unfrequented parts of the city, and just at dusk we met two women in stolas, in a lonely spot, and they were by no means homely. Walking softly, we followed them to a temple which they entered, and from which we could hear a curious humming, which resembled the sound of voices issuing from the depths of a cavern. Curiosity impelled us also to enter the temple. There we caught sight of many women, who resembled Bacantes, each of whom brandished in her right hand an emblem of Priapus. We were not permitted to see more, for as their eyes fell upon us, they raised such a hubbub that the vault of the temple trembled. They attempted to lay hands upon us, but we ran back to our inn as fast as we could go. Chapter the Sixteenth We had just disposed of the supper prepared by Jiten, when there came a timid rapping at the door. We turned pale. Who is there? we asked. Open and you will find out, came the answer. While we were speaking, the bar fell down of its own accord, the doors flew open and admitted our visitor. She was the self-same young lady of the covered head who had but a little while before stood by the peasant's side. So you thought, said she, that you could make a fool of me, did you? I am Cortia's handmaid, Cortia, whose rights you interrupted in the shrine. She has come to the inn, in person, and begs permission to speak with you. Don't be alarmed. She either blames your mistake nor does she demand punishment. On the contrary— she wonders what God has brought such well-bred young gentlemen into her neighborhood. Chapter the Seventeenth We were still holding our tongues and refraining from any expression of opinion, when the lady herself entered the room, attended by a little girl. Seating herself upon the bed, she wept for a long time. Not even then did we interject a single word, but waited, all attention, for what was to follow these well-ordered tears and this show of grief. When the diplomatic thunderstorm had passed over, she withdrew her haughty head from her mantle and wringing her hands until the joints cracked. What is the meaning of such audacity? she demanded. Where did you learn such tricks? They are worthy of putting to shame the assurance of all the robbers of the past. I pity you, so help me the God of truth, I do, for no one can look with impunity upon that which it is unlawful for him to see. In our neighborhood, there are so many gods that it is easier to meet one than it is to find a man. But do not think that I was actuated by any desire for revenge when I came here. I am more moved by your age than I am by my own injury, for it is my belief that youthful imprudence led you into committing a sacrilegious crime. That very night, I tossed so violently in the throes of a dangerous chill that I was afraid I had contracted a tertian ague, and in my dreams I prayed for a medicine. I was ordered to seek you out and to arrest the progress of the disease by means of an expedient to be suggested by your wonderful penetration. The cure does not matter so much, however, for a deeper grief gnaws at my vitals and drags me down, 
almost to the very doors of death itself. I am afraid that, with the careless impulsiveness of youth, you may divulge, to the common herd, what you witnessed in the shrine of Priapus, and reveal the rights of the gods to the rabble. On this account I stretch out my suppliant hands to your knees, and beg and pray that you do not make a mockery and a joke of our nocturnal rites, nor lay bare the secrets of so many years, into which scarcely a thousand persons are initiated. Chapter the Eighteenth The tears poured forth again, after this appeal, and shaken by deep sobs, she buried her whole face and breast in my bed, and I, moved by pity and by apprehension, begged her to be of good cheer and to make herself perfectly easy as to both of those issues, for not only would we not betray any secrets to the rabble, but we would also second divine providence, at any peril to ourselves. If any god had indicated to her any cure for her tertian ague. The woman cheered up at this promise, and smothered me with kisses. From tears she passed to laughter, and fell to running her fingers through the long hair that hung down about my ears. I will declare a truce with you, she said, and withdraw my complaint. But had you been unwilling to administer the medicine which I seek, I had a troop in readiness for the morrow, which would have exacted satisfaction for my injury and reparation for my dignity. Then she suddenly clapped her hands, and broke into such a peal of laughter that we were alarmed. The maid, who had been the first to arrive, did likewise on one side of us, as also did the little girl who had entered with the madam herself. Chapter the Nineteenth the whole place was filled with mocking laughter, and we, who could see no reason for such a change of front, stared blankly at each other and then at the women. Then Cortia spoke up finally. I gave orders that no mortal man should be admitted into this inn this day, so that I could receive the treatment from my ague without interruption. Asiltos was, for the moment, struck dumb by this admission of Cortia's, and I turned colder than a Gallic winter and could not utter a word but the personnel of the company relieved me from the fear that the worst might be yet to come, for they were only three young women, too weak to attempt any violence. Against us, who were of the male sex, at least, even if we had nothing else of the man about us, and this was an asset. Then, too, we were girded higher, and I had so arranged matters that if it came to a fight, I would engage Cortia myself, Asiltos the maid, and Jiten the girl. While I was turning over this plan in my mind, Cortia came to close quarters, to receive the treatment for her ague, but having her hopes disappointed, she flounced out in a rage and, returning in a little while, she had us overpowered by some unknown vagabonds, and gave orders for us to be carried away to a splendid palace. Then our determination gave place to astonishment, and death, sure and certain, began to obscure the eyes of suffering. Chapter the Twentieth Pray, madam, I groan, if you have anything worse in store, bring it on quickly for we have not committed a crime so heinous as to merit death by torture. The maid, whose name was Psyche, quickly spread a blanket upon the floor, and sought to secure an erection by fondling my member, which was already a thousand times colder than death. Asiltos, well aware by now of the danger of dipping into the secrets of others, covered his head with his mantle. In the meantime, the maid took two ribbons from her bosom and bound our feet with one and our hands with the other. Finding myself trussed up in this fashion, I remarked, You will not be able to cure your mistress ague in this manner. Granted, the maid replied, but I have other and surer remedies at hand. She brought me a vessel full of satyrion, as she said this, 
and so cheerfully did she gossip about its virtues that I drank down nearly all of the liquor, and because Asiltos had but a moment before rejected her advances, she sprinkled the dregs upon his back, without his knowing it. When this repartee had drawn to a close, Asiltos exclaimed, Don't I deserve a drink? Given away by my laughter, the maid clapped her hands and cried, I put one by you, young man. Did you drink so much all by yourself? What's that you say? Cortia chimed in. Did Encalpius drink all the satyrian there was in the house? And she laughed delightfully until her sides shook. Finally not even Jiten himself could resist a smile, especially when the little girl caught him around the neck and showered innumerable kisses upon him, and he not at all averse to it. Chapter the Twenty-First We would have cried aloud in our misery but there was no one to give us any help, and whenever I attempted to shout, Help! All honest citizens! Psyche would prick my cheeks with her hairpin, and the little girl would intimidate Asiltos with a brush dipped in satyrian. Then a catamite appeared, clad in a myrtle-colored frieze robe, and girded round with a belt. One minute he nearly gored us to death with his writhing buttocks, and the next he befouled us so with his stinking kisses that Cortia, with her robe tucked high, held up her whalebone wand and ordered him to give the unhappy wretch's quarter. Both of us then took a most solemn oath that so dread a secret should perish with us. Several wrestling instructors appeared and refreshed us, worn out as we were, by a massage with pure oil, and when our fatigue had abetted, we again donned our dining clothes and were escorted to the next room, in which were placed three couches, and where all the essentials necessary to a splendid banquet were laid out in all their richness. We took our places, as requested, and began with a wonderful first course. We were all but submerged in Falernian wine. When several other courses had followed, and we were endeavoring to keep awake, Cortia exclaimed, How dare you think of going to sleep when you know that the vigil of Priapus is to be kept? Chapter the Twenty-Second Worn out by all his troubles, Asiltos commenced to nod, and the maid, whom he had slighted, and of course insulted, smeared lamp-black all over his face, and painted his lips and shoulders with vermilion while he drowsed. Completely exhausted by so many untoward adventures, I, too, was enjoying the shortest of naps, the whole household, within and without, was doing the same, some were lying here and there asleep at our feet, others leaned against the walls, and some even slept head to head upon the threshold itself. The lamps, failing because of a lack of oil, shed a feeble and flickering light, when two Syrians, bent upon stealing an amphora of wine entered the dining room. While they were greedily pawing among the silver, they pulled the amphora in two, upsetting the table with all the silver plate, and a cup, which had flown pretty high, cut the head of the maid, who was drowsing upon a couch. She screamed at that, thereby betraying the thieves and wakening some of the drunkards. The Syrians, who had come for plunder, seeing that they were about to be detected, were so quick to throw themselves down besides a couch and commence to snore as if they had been asleep for a long time, that you would have thought they belonged there. The butler had gotten up and poured oil in the flickering lamps by this time, and the boys, having rubbed their eyes open, had returned to their duty, when in came a female cymbal player, and the crashing brass awoke everybody. Chapter the Twenty-Third The banquet began all over again, and Cortia challenged us to a drinking bout the crash of the cymbals lending ardor to her revel. A catamite appeared, the stalest of all mankind, well worthy of that house. 
Heaving a sigh, he wrung his hands until the joints cracked, and spouted out the following verses. When he had finished his poetry, he slobbered a most evil-smelling kiss upon me, and then, climbing upon my couch, he proceeded with all his might and main to pull all of my clothing off. I resisted to the limit of my strength. He manipulated my member for a long time, but all in vain. Gummy streams poured down his sweating forehead, and there was so much chalk in the wrinkles of his cheeks that you might have mistaken his face for a roofless wall, from which the plaster was crumbling in a rain. Chapter the Twenty-Fourth Driven to the last extremity, I could no longer keep back the tears. Madam, I burst out. Is this the nightcap which you ordered served to me? Clapping her hands softly, she cried out. Oh, you witty rogue, you are a fountain of repartee, but you never knew before that a catamite was called a canite cap, now did you? Then, fearing my companion would come off better than I. Madam, I said, I leave it to your sense of fairness. Is the Siltos to be the only one in this dining room who keeps holiday? Fair enough, conceded Cortilla. Let a Siltos have his canite cap too. On hearing that, the catamite changed mounts and having best-stridden my comrade, nearly drove him to distraction with his buttocks and his kisses. Jiton was standing between us and splitting his sides with laughter when Cortilla noticed him, and actuated by the liveliest curiosity, she asked whose boy he was, and upon my answering that he was my. Brother, why has he not kissed me then? she demanded. Calling him to her, she pressed a kiss upon his mouth, then putting her hand beneath his robe, she took hold of his little member as yet so undeveloped. This, she remarked, shall serve me very well tomorrow, as a whet to my appetite, but today I'll take no common fare after choice fish. Chapter the Twenty-Fifth She was still talking when Psyche, who was giggling, came to her side and whispered something in her ear. What it was, I did not catch. By all means, ejaculated Cortilla. A brilliant idea! Why shouldn't our pretty little Panicus lose her maidenhead when the opportunity is so favorable? A little girl, pretty enough, too, was led in at once. She looked to be not over seven years of age, and she was the same one who had before accompanied Cortilla to our room. Amidst universal applause, and in response to the demands of all, they made ready to perform the nuptial rites. I was completely out of countenance and insisted that such a modest boy as Jiton was entirely unfitted for such a wanton part, and moreover, that the child was not of an age at which she could receive that which a woman must take. Is that so? Cortia scoffed. Is she any younger than I was, when I submitted to my first man? Juno, my patroness, curse me if I can remember the time when I ever was a virgin, for I diverted myself with others of my own age, as a child then as the years passed. I played with bigger boys, until at last I reached my present age. I suppose that this explains the origin of the proverb, who carried the calf may carry the bull, as they say. As I feared that Jiton might run greater risk if I were absent, I got up to take part in the ceremony. Chapter the Twenty-Sixth Psyche had already enveloped the child's head in the bridal veil. The catamite, holding a torch, led the long procession of drunken women which followed. They were clapping their hands, having previously decked out the bridal bed with a suggestive drapery. Cortilla, spurred on by the wantonness of the others, seized hold of Jiton and drew him into the bridal chamber. There was no doubt of the boy's perfect willingness to go, nor was the girl at all alarmed at the name of marriage.
when they were finally in bed, and the doors shut, we seated ourselves outside the door of the bridal chamber, and Cortia applied a curious eye to a chink, purposely made, watching their childish dalliance with lascivious attention. She then drew me gently over to her side that I might share the spectacle with her, and when we both attempted to peep our faces were pressed against each other. Whenever she was not engrossed in the performance, she screwed up her lips to meet mine, and pecked at me continually with furtive kisses. A thunderous hammering was heard at the door, while all this was going on, and everyone wondered what this unexpected interruption could mean, when we saw a soldier, one of the night watch, enter with a drawn sword in his hand, and surrounded by a crowd of young rowdies. He glared about him with savage eyes and blustering mien, and catching sight of Cortilla, presently. What's up now, you shameless woman? He bawled. What do you mean by making game of me with lying promises, and cheating me out of the night you promised me? But you won't get off unpunished you and that lover of yours are going to find out that I'm a man. At the soldier's orders, his companion bound Cortilla and myself together, mouth to mouth, breast to breast, and thigh to thigh, and not without a great deal of laughter. Then the catamite, also at the soldier's order, began to beslaver me all over with the fetid kisses of his stinking mouth, a treatment I could neither fly from, nor in any other way avoid. Finally, he ravished me, and worked his entire pleasure upon me. In the meantime, the satyrian which I had drunk only a little while before spurred every nerve to lust, and I began to gore Cortilla impetuously, and she, burning with the same passion, reciprocated in the game. The rowdies laughed themselves sick, so moved were they by that ludicrous scene, for here was I, mounted by the stalest of catamites, involuntarily and almost unconsciously responding with as rapid a cadence to him as Cortilla did in her wriggling under me. While this was going on, Panicus, unaccustomed at her tender years to the pastime of Venus, raised an outcry and attracted the attention of the soldier, by this unexpected howl of consternation, for this slip of a girl was being ravished, and Jiten the victor, had won a not bloodless victory. Aroused by what he saw, the soldier rushed upon them, seizing Panicus, then Jiten, then both of them together, in a crushing embrace. The virgin burst into tears and pleaded with him to remember her age. But her prayers availed her nothing, the soldier only being fired the more by her childish charms. Panicus covered her head at last, resolved to endure whatever the fates had in store for her. At this instant, an old woman, the very same who had tricked me on that day when I was hunting for our lodging, came to the aid of Panicus, as though she had dropped from the clouds. With loud cries she rushed into the house, swearing that a gang of footpads was prowling about the neighborhood, and the people invoked the help of all honest men, in vain, for the members of the night watch were either asleep or intent upon some carouse, as they were nowhere to be found. Greatly terrified at this, the soldier rushed headlong from Cortia's house. His companions followed after him, freeing Panicus from impending danger and relieving the rest of us from our fear. I was so weary of Cortia's lechery that I began to meditate means of escape. I made my intentions known to Asiltos, who, as he wished to rid himself of the importunities of Psyche, was delighted. Had not Jiten been shut up in the bridal chamber, the plan would have presented no difficulties, but we wished to take him with us and out of the way of the viciousness of these prostitutes. We were anxiously engaged in debating this very point, when Panicus fell out of bed and dragged Jiten after her, by her own weight. He was not hurt, but
But the girl gave her head a slight bump and raised such a clamor that Cortilla, in a terrible fright, rushed headlong into the room, giving us the opportunity of making off. We did not tarry, but flew back to our where, throwing ourselves upon the bed, we passed the remainder of the night without fear. Sallying forth next day, we came upon two of our kidnappers, one of whom Asiltos savagely attacked the moment he set eyes upon him, and, after having thrashed and seriously wounded him, he ran to my aid against the other. He defended himself so stoutly, however, that he wounded us both slightly, and escaped unscathed. The third day had now dawned, the date set for the free dinner, at Trimalchio's, but battered as we were, flight seemed more to our taste than quiet, so, we hastened to our inn and, as our wounds turned out to be trifling, we dressed them with vinegar and oil, and went to bed. The ruffian whom we had done for, was still lying upon the ground and we feared detection. Affairs were at this pass, and we were framing melancholy excuses with which to evade the coming revel, when a slave of Agamemnon's burst in upon our trembling conclave and said, Don't you know with whom your engagement is today? The exquisite Trimalchio, who keeps a clock and a liveried bugler in his dining room, so that he can tell, instantly, how much of his life has run out. Forgetting all our troubles at that, we dressed hurriedly and ordered Jiton, who had very willingly performed his servile office, to follow us to the bath. 